3,400 years ago, God heard the cries of his people in slavery in the land of Egypt and raised up a prophet, Moses, to deliver them from that slavery. And almost immediately, God's people regretted their prayers. They wished that they were not going to have to leave Egypt. They said, it really wasn't all that bad, Lord, despite the fact that we kept crying out to you saying, this is miserable and you promised to bring us to a promised land. God led them out of their slave camps in Egypt by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And instead of trusting God there, they cried out again, Aha, God, you just want to kill us all. You have led us here to this place so that Pharaoh's army can massacre us by the seashore. God then split the waters of the Red Sea so his people could cross on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army and chariots tried to cross after them, he closed the waters over top so that the people of Israel these liberated slaves could see the bodies of their tormentors dead on the seashore on the other side. And then even more testing began. Three tests, really, of the Israelites that we focus on this morning. The first of which, of course, was to trust that God would provide for their physical needs. Now that God had delivered them out of Egypt, would he leave them in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula to die without food? In Exodus chapter 16, the second book of the Bible, we read that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and his brother Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Of course, they didn't. Israel failed and failed miserably at their test. Later on, God tests to see if they will trust that he will guard them in all their ways. Will God be with this people that he had said were his people, descendants of Abraham, who would be more numerous than the sands on the seashore or the stars in heaven? Would he protect them as they wandered through the wilderness? And in Exodus 17, we read that as the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by stages, there was no water for the people to drink. A common problem in the desert, not having water. So the people quarreled with Moses again and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? 
They're almost ready to stone me to death. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile to part it so the people could cross and go. Behold, I will stand before you there. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Once more, Israel was tested. Would they believe that God would guard them in their ways on the farther way to the promised land? But Israel failed. They failed again. Of course, the last test was whether God truly would be on their side as he brought them to the land he had promised to Abraham 400 years before. Would he rid the land of Palestine, of these tribes that had taken it over, offering human sacrifices, sometimes even burning their own children on fire heaps to appease their gods? Would he rid the land of these people so that they could take possession and bring knowledge of the true God who created heaven and earth and the human race to all the people of the planet? Well, The first thing they did when they finally came to the border of this land was send spies to see just how difficult the battle would be. In Numbers chapter 13, the fourth book of the Bible, so time has passed here, the spies came back to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They brought some back with them. But, there's always a but, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They are very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Israel then spent 40 years in the wilderness for their lack of faith. 40 years they wandered before they finally came back to the promised land, ready to trust God, ready to pass their test. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And at the end, he declared victory in the desert over Satan. Each time Israel failed, but every time Jesus was tempted, he prevailed. He prevailed, first of all, in the very same temptation that Israel was faced with. What do you need to survive in this world? Is having bread enough? Is having a roof over your head enough? A good education? A safe place to live? Is having entertainment at your fingertips on any number of streaming services enough? Is having cable television enough? Is having... Points on your credit card so you can go out and have a wonderful meal or buy an airline ticket. Enough. A lot of people in Quebec and Canada were sure that it would be. 
And now we live in a place where we are safe, where we have low crime, where we have places to live that have heating in the winter and air conditioning in the summer, electricity that we can turn on anytime we want, entertainment at the touch of a button or right there on a screen we can carry around with us in our hands. We are one of the most affluent humans that history has ever seen, so much so that people want desperately to come here. And yet, if you go and look at the news, especially for the last few weeks, you will find that the adolescents in our societies have never been more depressed and anxious than they are now. The reports vary between 25 up to 50% of teenagers are dealing with anxiety and depression on a regular basis. Because all they have is bread. And yes, they have it in abundance. And yes, they have it everywhere they turn. But man shall not live by bread alone. We have an entire generation that has been raised with nothing but bread. No foundation deeper than that. Nothing for which to live and nothing for which to die. And certainly no knowledge of a God who exists who cares for them to the extent he would send his son to die in their place. That Jesus, God's son himself, would die that they might be saved and know that there is meaning and purpose even in the worst circumstances of life. We fail that test of understanding that we cannot live by bread alone, but must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We test God as to whether he'll care for us, to guard us in all our ways, to throw ourselves off the pinnacle of the temple and see if perhaps God will catch us. That whole encounter you see between Satan and Jesus at the pinnacle of the temple really has to do with trusting God's word. It goes all the way back to Genesis. God told Adam, You can eat from any tree in this garden. All these vegetables and fruit are from you. Pineapples, mangoes, blueberries, raspberries, in abundance, anything you want. There's even a tree of life from which you can eat. There's also a tree of knowledge of good and evil. You really don't want to have that fruit. And immediately, that's exactly what Adam and Eve wanted. Our first two parents were desperate, not for pineapples or mangoes or blueberries or any great fruit or vegetable. They wanted knowledge of good and evil. And boy, did we get knowledge of evil. Now we know what evil is because it's all around us. Even in the midst of all this plenty People are still stunned when terrible things happen. Bus drivers driving into daycare centers, killing children who thought they were just going to spend a day at school. Wars being fought over land, over pride. All of that evil because we passed over the good fruit and went for the one tree we shouldn't eat from. And now Satan thinks he can do the same thing the serpent did with Eve. Did God really say with Jesus? Did God really not say that he would protect you and guard you? That he would send his angels to take charge over you? God's word is not there 
as a safety cushion. God's word is not a trampoline at the bottom of the building that's on fire that you can jump into. God's word is assurance of his promises and also his desire for our lives and how we should live together with one another. Satan tempts Jesus just as he tempted the Israelites to not use God's word properly. I once knew a man that came into a budget meeting for the church because it takes money to keep the heat on, the electricity. It was not here at Ascension. Who wanted to add some vast amount to the budget to be given away to people, which is a laudable goal. But people in the meeting said, where is that money going to come from? That would be 30, 40% more than the offerings were last year. And he said, don't worry, God will provide. Roman Catholic theologians have a word for that. They call it testing God. And if you've learned anything in this reflection this morning, it's one does not test God. Yes, God has given us great and many gifts. And yes, God wants us to trust him, but he also wants us to use the other gifts he has given to us. Our intellects, our reason, our common sense, our sympathy for one another and our empathy. All of these are also gifts of God that we apply in the working of our everyday vocations and lives. You don't tempt God for your own purposes or just to make your life easier. Yes, when things go bad, we trust that God will see us through. But you don't have to find a way to make things bad just to see if God will help you out. Then, of course, we come to the granddaddy of tests which Israel failed and that Jesus was also faced with by Satan. Look at all the kingdoms of the earth, whether it be the provinces of India, Pakistan, Communist China, Argentina, Brazil, Japan, Canada, Quebec, the United States. Jesus, I will give you all of these and you will have true authority in heaven and on earth. You can build the kind of world that you want to build. You can have people loving one another, serving their neighbors, making sure that poverty doesn't happen. Just one catch. I need you to bow down and worship me. There's a fringe benefit to this, of course, to Jesus. It means no cross. It means no Good Friday. It means no crucifixion. It means no passion. It means no taunting by the Roman soldiers. It means no slap on the cheek by the prison guard before the high priest. Jesus can avoid all that unpleasantness. All he has to do is say, Satan, you give me the kingdoms. Instead of me having to earn them through my sacrifice at the cross. Lutherans have a name for this temptation. It is the temptation to glory. The temptation to get the things of God the easy way to get them in a way that does not involve picking up our cross and following Jesus. Basically, Satan is laying before all of us, just as he laid before Adam and Eve and before Moses and the people of God in the wilderness and Jesus, two ways in this world. One is the right way, and the other is the easy way. 
the church is always tempted by this as well. You and I are tempted to simply worship Satan. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan comes with a pitchfork and horns and a forked tail and appears before you in the living room and says, Coon, I need you to worship me, and then you will have everything that you desire. It doesn't work like that. It never really has. Satan is wilier than that, craftier than that. He'll say things like this. You don't want to go to that church. It's so small. There's so few people there. The music isn't all that great. They sing out of a book or off a piece of paper. Pastor, eh. Sometimes I fall asleep while he's talking. There's another church down the road. So much more exciting. And they're going to tell you the things you want to hear. Or even better yet, why be a Christian at all? There is no reward for being a Christian in Quebec anymore. In fact, if anything, there's derision. There are people that look at you askance. It's even happened to me here in Park Extension with Deb while somebody was screaming at me about being a pedophile because I happened to have a collar on when I was walking. I understand why they might be concerned. I wanted to say, this is my wife. I'm not a Roman Catholic. But it was not a place to have the conversation. We want to be respected in the world. Pastors want that. People, Christians want that. And yet Jesus says there is a right way and an easy way. The easy way is to look for the world's respect and honor and prestige and praise. The hard way is to pick up your cross and do the things that will win you no awards, no bonuses to your paycheck, no big payout, no Juno or Gemini or Oscar or Grammy. The things, though, that will help your neighbor, that will show love and concern, the things that never get a reward, the things that never get an A-plus on a report card, the things that never get praise in your performance review, but the things that God looks at and says, well done, good and faithful servant. The temptations in the desert were not really a template to follow but they do remind us of the ways we are tempted too to fail and the way that Satan tries to do the very same things with us that he did to Jesus. What you need to remember is that where Israel failed and where we too will fail, Jesus prevailed. Jesus won. Jesus defeated Satan at every turn in the desert. He defeated him in Jerusalem. He defeated him on Mount Calvary, and he most definitively defeated him at Easter. And while that victory is hidden from the world now, it is ours in baptism. It is what we receive at the altar. It is the blessing that Jesus gives us every time we gather together, that he is the victor over Satan. And that in him we are clothed, even if the world thinks we're naked. The world seeks temporary goods, ease, and worldly power. We seek for nothing because we have the one who has prevailed over everyone and everything. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.